right, but let's just say that I hadn't seen it, and I said to you, I haven't seen Evil Dead 2 yet. What would you think? I'd think that you're a cinematic idiot, and I'd feel sorry for you. Hello, I'm Monica. And I'm Brad. And this is Cinematic Idiot. Every few weeks, we watch a classic movie that we've always meant to see, but we've never gotten around to. We want you to watch these movies with us, like a movie book club. There's just two rules. The films have to be from 1993 or earlier, and at least one of us hasn't seen it. Hey, Brad. How's it going? It's pretty good. How are you? Doing well. And just like a book club, we reserve the right to spoil everything, not only about the feature presentation we're going to talk about tonight, but also everything going on in this podcast that we talk about. Spoilers, spoilers, they are coming. Yeah, we don't believe in spoilers. Uh, well, <laughs> two points. I, I would like to think I wouldn't like to know everything right away, but if you're chiming in for a, a book club type movie podcast, we're going to spoil it. Yeah, you're here to talk about the whole thing, even the, the strains of the, the last musical exactly. moments of the credits. Exactly. All right. Well, speaking of musical moments, that takes us right into our feature presentation. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's a segue and a half. Well, we're working on our segues. This is a new thing for us. So um, the film that we watched this last time was a film of my choice, uh, which was called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964, directed by Jacques Demy and starring Catherine Deneuve in one of her very first roles. And had you? how many times have you seen this before? I've probably seen it about three times before, um, but they were all in quick succession all around the early 2000s, thereabouts. Um, So it was the kind of thing that I think I first heard about during a re-release that it had in 04, and then I watched it kind of quickly thereafter and then watched on a couple of subsequent releases. And this is my first time, which is why it counts for the pod. Right. This movie was crazy. It's so good. Very good. It's very Mm -hmm. enjoyable. My initial reaction was this movie... Thank God I knew that it was a musical. I, I obviously knew it was French, I, that it was a musical. Because if if I hadn't known about five minutes in, even though the fact that it is a musical, and I knew that going in, I felt like I was on crazy pills. Yeah. And after a while, it starts to, for me, be a little bit much. It starts to grate its own way. It, it is a delight. But had I not known, I'd have thought I was I was freaking out within the first five minutes. So for the uninitiated, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is not just a musical. Um, it also is done in a, at the time, what was a very inventive style in the style of a sort of an opera where every single word of the film is sung. Um, so unlike a more traditional musical where you have songs that kind of come up and then there's an ebb and flow sort of in the action, which mm-hmm. is one of the complaints a lot of people have about musicals, um, he decided to kind of avoid that sort of emotional ebb and flow by just making every single word sung so you were kind of in for a penny in for a pound there was the whole thing out there it's a bold choice it is a very bold choice and it's a strange experience as a viewer particularly when you're not used to those conventions or when you're used to the more traditional conventions Mm -hmm. of a musical which i'm not i've not versed in musicals for the most part i've only actually seen a handful over the last few years i saw very few as a child uh though i love mary poppins you know, but over the last few years, I've been watching more and more with you right. um, as part of a previous project. And it's just as a good idea to check out, to uh, become less of a cinematic idiot. Um, this was still, this was an incredibly strange experience for me to have everything in these kind of lilting tones where everyone is singing. Um, and I assumed that quickly then, I'm like, this must be what an opera is like. Mm-hmm. I host another podcast it's called Operatic Idiot, but um, <laughs> we won't get into that right now. I just assume that this is the style of that. Very strange. It's a, it's a bit, you know, um, 
it's, it's a bit jarring, and it took quite a while for me to, to get into it. I will admit, by the last third, I was, I was kind of tired of it. And of wanted, the style? I was kind of tired of the style. I just, I don't think opera is my bag. Well, um, what I would say is even if opera is your bag, that's not necessarily what this film is, um, mm-hmm. in part because opera is about spectacle, um, much in the same way like your action movies or other things are really about this moment of um, something that's so over the top, it's enjoyable in that way. The, um, the grandeur of seeing something live right. on stage, much with the rest of theater. And, and what I would say is even though this film is about big emotions, I wouldn't say that the kind of action that's happening here are big giant things. It's meant to no. be sort of kind of an average everyday life, uh, you know, that's really conveyed through song. It's a small film. When yeah. you kind of just break it down, it's a lo- it's a melancholic love story. Still, you know, somewhat small. You know, maybe you want to read into it that it's a bit of an anti-war film. Um, it's very much a, uh, a strange piece of the of the French New Wave. You know, kind of going against what the rest of the you know, a lot of things that are going on in the French New Wave, or at least it's in a period of time when the French New Wave is. You know, broadening its horizons or at least you know expanding its wings but it's 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 very strange musical but a beautifully shot film um everyone is, is gorgeous in it um everyone's you know having a great time it's a lot of fun but it does for me personally that last third i was i was ready to just have them talk and then occasionally break out in a song well so let's let's kind of talk a little bit about the plot and what it's about just in case you haven't seen it this film is not the easiest film to find um it's one of those that you might have to either get through your library or um find the criterion release um it's it's not one of those ones that's available kind of on streaming all the time or um for a long time this film was sort of lost uh because it was shot on a certain kind of film stock where the colors uh which are one of the other kind of hallmarks of this film um were all sort of drained away over time so it wasn't until it had a new release where everything was sort of restored that people were really able to appreciate it kind of in its glory and that was in that early 2000s release that where there was a lot more um sort of attention that was given to this film so it is a film that has a sort of contemporary feel um but it is about a 16 year old girl uh named genevieve uh although it's pronounced in a very traditional french way but uh neither of us can recreate no i don't think we can we can say it so genevieve um is is her name and uh she meets a boy whose name is guy uh of course they say guy we can can handle that one okay so we'll say geese guy and genevieve guy and genevieve meet um and fall in love very quickly she's very young um as is he he has to um fulfill a draft obligation and go and away for two years to the military to go fight um and so she knows that she's going to be left behind so she's very sad that he's about to leave um they have an illicit night together um from which she becomes pregnant and sort of right away um he doesn't write to her right away which her mother has told her um another kind of suitor comes into her life who's very enamored of her um and her mother's shop that she that they depend on for their life um is failing and so she feels a lot of responsibility to kind of shoulder some financial burden and so she has to choose between waiting for her lover who is no longer writing to her and doesn't know that she's pregnant um to choosing between this man uh and so she decides to go ahead and go with the man that has money and one of the things that's very interesting about this film is how it doesn't vilify either her decisions genevieve's decisions it doesn't 
uh, make a bad guy out of the new suitor, out of the mother, mm-hmm. um, out of anybody that would have these sort of central tropes that might be um, the kind of thing that it would be really easy to shorthand into mm-hmm. making decisions that were bad or angry or poor. Um, but so she chooses to go off um, with this other man. And so when her suitor finally returns um, from the war and looking for her, um, you know, she she's gone. Uh, and so he's despondent. He's very upset. Um, he is drinking and sort of destroying his life. Um, he has someone who's very close to him die. And so his whole life is sort of fallen apart and he manages to pull it back together, uh, with a woman who's always sort of loved him from afar. Um, at which point they kind of stop the film and then go forward many years in time, probably five or six years, um, where you're able to see that he has managed to get back on his feet, open the gas station that he always wanted to open for himself. Um, and Genevieve kind of pulls up in her mink coat and with her child, who is his child, which he knows. Um, and they sort of look at each other and are able to really think about the time that they had together. Um, but at the end of the day, she gets back in her car. She drives away. Um, and he is has his wife and his son then come up and sort of swoops them up in hugs. And, and that's the end of the film. Um, so it's very dramatic. It's um, a movie of large emotions yeah. handled smallly. Yep, they're, they're absolutely. Very much tamped down. Um, the melodrama is is big because everyone. It feels big because everyone is singing constantly. Mm-hmm. But the, really, what their expressions, their mannerisms, the way they handle things, it's handled in a small, small, very restrained kind of way. Mm-hmm. Which is great. It's beautiful. It's a great dichotomy for that to happen. Yeah, so a lot of times this film is referred to as a tragedy, uh, which is interesting. And I think that I might have seen it that way in some of the first years that I saw it. Um, because it does feel like that in the sense that they have this great love and then it's lost. And so you really think about like all that could have been and that that's the tragedy. Um, and that's youth that's on your youth. end. Yeah. Thinking of it that way. Yeah. But now that you're an old lady... Now that I'm an old lady and I look back at it and I am <laughs> able to see these life choices they made, um, you can really see that it's also a film just about the different directions that life takes you. And you can kind of think about once what was, but they're very happy, I think, in their own lives. Or there is at least like an intimation that um, at least he is happy in his oh, new yeah, life. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, and, and I don't think, we don't get the impression, a uh, distinct impression that she's unhappy. Right, or It's right. maybe left ambiguous, but... We're not, you know, we're not given a moment where she's desperate. She doesn't clutch at his arm to to hold on right. to him at that moment. They, she happily gets in her car, drives away, yeah. doesn't look back. And they and both recognize they've made choices that have brought them to their life. They're not going to try and go back on those choices. She and... offers him a chance to to meet their child. Yeah, he refuses, mm-hmm. and there's no emotion there. There's no problem on her end that he says no. I won't. You know, what realistically is the only opportunity he will ever have to actually meet his child. He he declines it. And she's fine with it. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of the things that um, I would say was really interesting about watching this, like with 10 years in between viewings, practically, is like a real opportunity to to see how I've changed personally in the course of this film. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this film in a long time, it might be worth a revisit even just for that reason. Which is one of the great things about an actual rewatch of a film mm-hmm. uh, with the, you know, a lengthy period of time. I mean, I rewatch Star Wars every year. I don't really get anything new out of every every year. But when you take a film, you wait 10 years, you wait 15 years and rewatch it. It can be amazing to see how much you've changed and how much that film has changed for you. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, have you seen a lot of New Wave, or French New Wave particularly at this point? Uh, as a cinematic idiot, I pretend that I have. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm always, I'm like, oh yeah, Eric Romer, you know, Alain René, of course, Truffaut, Godard. I mean, oh, it's the Pantheon. I've seen like three. Yeah. And, and if we're going to include this in the, uh, the subset, I, I can probably make that four uh, if I had to guess. It's an interesting movement in film. Comes out of you know film noir, which I've been you know praising for the last few months. Uh, it's been a big part of my life the last few months, uh, and then directly leads into the new Hollywood. It's like the stepping stones in yeah. the in the uh, dynamic evolution of film. But I I swear I've only seen like a handful. I honestly am the same way. I haven't seen that much new wave. Um, I've seen you know things like Breathless and some of like the mm-hmm. really oh yeah four hundred um, blows right exactly. But that's about it honestly. Is some of those mainstays and you can really see why this is sort of included, but also it's like a really different kind of film. Um, it's a very it's you know the French new wave kicked off in the late fifties. Uh, I know more about it historically than I've ever actually know about it from actually watching the films. I just know that it's really just kind of a catch-all. Yeah. Um, just like similarly with the you know Australian new wave, it's a catch-all for when a film's cinema takes off and gains international acclaim, and they just lump everybody into yeah, it. Yeah, they why don't you have... necessarily like share tenets. Exactly. Or perspective. I mean, even people like Louis Malle and uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, who you know made crime films. At least Melville made crime films, films, uh, neo noirs almost. Um, they they still get lumped into the French new wave because of the of their you know location and time to that. Um, Agnes Farda, all the others uh, along those lines. Um, it's it's more just, you know, that's ex- why there's a big difference between what this film is kind of doing stylistically and thematically yeah. than, you know, what, you know, Breathless does, what 400 Blows does at the, you know, beginning of the, the late 50s and the uh, beginning of the 60s. Well, so I have to admit I wasn't really totally sure where Jacques Demy kind of fit into that mm-hmm. group. Um, and so one of the things that after we saw the film this time, we tried to do a little bit of reading and do a little bit of research. We'll, we'll post some um, notes to some of the articles oh, yeah. that we looked at in the show notes. Um, but they were kind of talking about some of the things that um, were different about Jacques Demy and that of the French New Wave directors, he's really considered sort of the most pedestrian or accessible, depending on how um, charitable some okay. <laughs> people are going to be. Um and so that was really interesting to me. Uh, but one of uh, there, there was a great article on the Criterion uh, website. This was we watched a Criterion film, uh, the the release, the Criterion release of this film when mm. we watched it. And one of the great things that um, if we or if you're ever watching a film that's also been compiled for Criterion, they have a great website that includes usually a lot of um, photographs that include behind the scenes kinds of shots. There's a lot of really great um, articles and essays that you can kind of find to, to read and talk about uh, where these films kind of fit into the film pantheon. And the discs themselves are loaded with extras. Yeah. So we uh, we did this with The Third Man, the last film we watched. We did this one. And anytime that we have a chance, I'm always breaking out a Criterion Collection disc because there's so many extra things. Great audio commentary. Um, Right. No, just to really give you a yeah. chance to, to absorb that a little bit more. And so that was one of the really interesting things for me in this was really seeing how Demi was approached as being, um, I mean, the, the most uh, probably applicable modern uh, pieces to call him Twee. Like he got a lot of kinds of comparisons that like a Wes Anderson okay. of today might have. Um and it's because every shot was so meticulously and perfectly composed. Everything felt a little bit like it was in a dollhouse, which we also hear about Wes Anderson. Yep. Um, everything was beautiful and bright colors. Everything is perfectly composed. And one of the reasons why film historians feel like he didn't make the leap, um, 
in the 80s and 90s was because his films weren't made for that world of VHS where everything was sort of lopped off and mm-hmm. there was okay. a lot of pan and scan. Oh, yeah. You weren't really able to appreciate the way that um, the film was constructed in the same way. And so it's not until later when you can really go and look at it uh, that it makes a really big difference. I just want to take a seen. moment and, and thank DVDs and then Blu-rays for killing pan and scan. I know, I know. Thing. I mean, we, and also because of the large widescreen TVs, most everyone is now purchasing, everything is widescreen. Everything is lettered boxed. You know, I, I'm so happy that we live in this age. Well, and we both, I know, love to see films in the theater as they were sort of meant to be seen and have that kind of communal experience. But a lot of times that's not possible for well, I was, many reasons. I, I'm about to say, we, we, we both love to go to see them. We love movies. Uh-huh. We don't see any movies. We're doing a podcast about how we haven't seen anything. We both love to go to the theater. We never go to the theater. Right. For lots of reasons. Um, but it is nice to be able to do as much as you can to recreate something that's really beautiful. Uh, so stay tuned for our next podcast, which is the theater going idiots. So <laughs> Don't worry. It'll come out like once a year. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I thought that was really interesting when it comes to Demi and, like, the way that he's seen. But I think that the the Wes Anderson comparison is apt. I really feel like that, if you're the kind of person who likes that kind of film, you might Certainly when I think too. of, of uh, The Royal Tannenbaums, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, um, Moonrise Kingdom, some of these films that have just, I mean, uh, the Darjeeling Limited, yep. just where the, the, every sequence is a dollhouse that's perfect. The lush colors pop off the screen. Mm-hmm. Um and and we know that uh, Anderson is a huge French New Wave fan. This is probably part of it. You know, while these may have you know more thematic or stylistic things from you know Godard or Truffaut, certainly maybe his color palette is from Demi. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yes, so, I never thought about. <laughs> so I mean, I think that there's a lot to admire in this film. Um, one of which is just if you are a fan of musicals, which I am, um, it's a really interesting uh, kind of piece, particularly when you think about where it appears. Um, so West Side Story came out about three years before this. Sound of Music came out the year after this. So it's really in that period where like the giant studio musical and where probably the most classic examples of the studio musical have really come on the scene as being huge. Of course, at this time, there's also like giant awful flops that are coming out like dr doolittle is just a few, a few years, years later down the road, yep. um and there's other things that are just sort of forgotten at this point um that were along those same kind of lines and so he's really able to take a form that is being done really expensively and do it for a lot less um and do it on a different scale and do it in a way that's really about human emotions rather than those kind of large full-scale kind of musical pieces like you see with West Side Story. Yeah, it's certainly not sweeping. At mm-hmm. no point are, do you become so captivated by the film, so caught up in it, mm-hmm. uh, that you're taken to a different place. You still always feel like you're in this intimate moment with these people uh, by the way, not only it's staged, but the way they sing. So Yeah, and there's not a lot of dancing. I think that's a big part of it, too, is that there's not, like, show pieces in no, the film. No, I mean, well, and I, I was looking up some of the information on the music uh, from Michelle Legrand, and I was surprised that there are singles or there were there, there were know. things were up for best song. I don't even remember there being songs. I, yeah. I, I just assumed they were, you know, they obviously were repeating dialogue, but didn't have, you know, that, that, you know, chorus verse structure. It didn't have any of that. Um, there was so. like a Frank Sinatra cover, which mm-hmm. is really bizarre. Tony like, Bennett yeah. covered one of the major songs. Um, they, you know, of course had it translated to English. Very strange mm-hmm. um, that I, no point that was I thinking, that we were, you know, moving on to the next song. That we had another, you know, another set piece. And you're very much right. There's almost no dancing, and the dancing is is in a dance hall. 
So right. That doesn't really count. No. Although there's plenty of musicals that use that too, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> but they are a set piece at that point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's a little bit different. Um, but there are moments that I think are sort of quaint to a modern audience. And I think you pointed out some of those things, like that when you're kind of watching it, you kind of roll your eyes or you kind of giggle. Um, but to me, that's part of the charm of this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really, really... Um, it's charming. That's that's the best word I can think of. And I was a little strong earlier about that. By the the last reel, I was tired of it. It just it seemed a bit much. I guess I found myself just reading the dialogue from the subtitles and really just not really paying attention to the voices as much. It just it just kind of wore on me. But I did find it charming essentially throughout the film. It's gorgeous. Um, Catherine Deneuve is 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 breathtaking. Um, it's it's well set up. It's an interesting film, and certainly just the colors. The color palette is, is so incredible. It's very few films uh, have I ever seen that are that breathtaking by how they actually use color. This is just the kind of film that's like exactly in my wheelhouse, which is one of yeah. the reasons why I wanted you to see it. Um, it's maybe not the kind of film that everybody is going to appreciate in the same way. But if you have a background with musicals or you just kind of want to see things that are important, I think it's a really good one to look at to really understand what musicals could do and how they could have moved in different directions, although this particular style never really took off. No, it's this film is unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. So more than anything else, I would recommend It's not terrible so being not like anything i've ever seen is great in this instance um it's a really well-made film it, but it's completely outside of every wheelhouse i yeah. can't i think of even as you stated it you're a lover of musicals it doesn't hit with every person who loves musicals it's a very strange film i don't think it's as widely seen as it probably needs to be i would recommend this heartily to everyone well and i think that it's also the kind of um uh, in that same article that was from Criterion, that same essay, they made a point that, um, in, of course, in musicals, as everybody knows, the reason that someone breaks into song is usually when the emotion becomes so large um, that they can't just talk about it, they've got to sing it. Um, and that's why you're seeing something that's happening that's sort of larger than life. So when you're watching, uh, you know, West Side Story, since we were just talking about that, Ad Maria starts to sing about how she feels pretty. She's singing about it because her emotion about being so excited about going out and being a woman for the first time is so overwhelming to her that that's why she's going to sing that instead of just talking about it and saying it. Um, and so, again, when this film came um, in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, everyone sings everything, whether it's banal about, like, I like movies, not the theater. <laughs> like, they're just singing whatever it is that they're well, doing. They're singing about how they're going to see Carmen. Right, right. And so at the same time, like, you're able to recognize all action as being important. And the comparison that um, that they make is to the 1981 film Pennies from Heaven. I don't know if you've ever seen that no. film. Um, that's a great kind of postmodern musical. Okay. But in that, like, the idea is very cynical. And it's that anytime someone's singing, it's that they're believing something that couldn't possibly come true. That there's, like, a okay. misplaced optimism that's there. That someone's singing something that's not going to happen. Um, and in this film, people are really just singing their actual true, you know, truth. And so you're really able to see sort of this kind of positive, optimistic, humanist side of Demi in a way that a lot of other filmmakers are maybe more cynical. Um, and it's one of the things that makes this a great film for, like for the optimists in life. <laughs> um, as a note, unless we've seen the musical together, just assume. You just I haven't, haven't seen, seen it. it. <laughs> I have not seen it. 
I think we remedied Mary Poppins, which was the lone one that I had seen probably without you. We rewatched that together recently. Well, I'm guessing that we're not going to get to Pennies from Heaven anytime soon, but if anybody ever wants to see Christopher Walken in his full musical regalia, not horrible Peter Pan live, um, if you really want to see him able to sing and dance in the way that he once could in 1981, it's a good film to check out. Well, as someone who enjoyed Peter Pan live... Um, you're not underselling it, so maybe we'll put this on the list. Put it on the master doc. It's it's in the uh, it's in the possibilities in the coming months. All right, cool. Well, so any other final thoughts? Anything that you thought about the film that you thought was weird or good or or something that you thought was something? All, I, all I can notice? say, gorgeous film, uh, wonderful music. Um, it is underscored. It just didn't feel like songs, um, but it's just you know melancholy. Plays the emotions small, beautifully done. Um, I'd certainly recommend this to anyone. It's a, it's a strange, bizarre film. Uh, when I kind of, when you th- really think about musicals of the time, um, I definitely recommend it. Well, thanks for watching it with me. Great, thank you for recommending it. Very cool. Well, so this is the part in the show where we talk about things that we've noticed going on in the pop culture world this week. And Brad, would you start us off with talking about what you noticed this week? Yeah, a couple things um, have kind of come to me lately first of all i want to mention to anyone if you don't know about the criterion collection check it out it's a wonderful selection of contemporary classic films remastered beautifully put together beautiful packaging essays everything great the criterion collection um i've mentioned it also in the past as a as just an aside here and there but my current obsession in the world of i I guess maybe social media if we want to call it this is letterboxd.com yeah um it's a site where you kind of keep track of what you've seen what you would like to see you can write reviews share reviews follow uh critics follow your friends see what your friends are checking out um make special lists i have a list uh on my letterboxd account where i keep track of the films we're watching for this podcast i've keeping track of the criterion collection of films i've been watching i even have a list for things i've seen in the theater and for things i've been watching for this noir festival that i've been doing this summer letterbox.com l-e-t-t-e-r-b-o-x-d.com because it's the modern internet we're in like what internet 3.0 which mm-hmm. means just find a vowel kick it out of there so letterbox.com I'm on there um, as BrooksB6, I believe is the handle that they have me on. Um, check it out. Be my friend. I'll friend you back. Um, I just love it. I've been wanting a site for years that I could keep track of what I've been watching and what I want to watch. Um, things just fly out of my head uh, you know, if, I'm, if I don't keep track of it. And I want to have a paper list. Um, I'm a big fan of the website Goodreads, uh, which I was using for books, but I've been searching for one for movies for the longest time period. Now I found it, letterboxd.com. I'm obsessed with it. I'm on there all the time. The other item that I love um, came out about a week or so ago. It's a list from the AV Club. I love the AV Club. Love their reviews. Do a great job of film, television, uh, games, books, um, just general pop culture stuff. They did a list called the Best American Film Directors from from Robert Altman to Robert Zemeckis. And basically they went through the alphabet and for each letter picked who the uh, best American director was. Uh, C, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, T, Tarantino. L, Lynch. H, um, don't remember H, but K was for Kubrick. <laughs> uh, so they went through everything. It's through the excellent film staff at the AV Club. I'm a huge fan of their work, as I said. Uh, it's a great list. And then some of them, when they had kind of maybe a tie or they had multiple people put in, you know, Robert Altman was their their selection for A. They still mentioned um, 
you know, P.T. Anderson and Wes Anderson and still kind of discuss them uh, as, you know, as runner-ups on that great list. Um, so many great authors. Uh, H. John Houston. That's what that's I'm assuming it's gotta be John Houston. So Howard Hawks. uh or Howard Hawks. One of the two, <laughs> son of a uh but that's as I said, the best American film directors from Robert Altman to Robert Zemeckis from the A V Club. Just love the list, love going through it. Went through it a few days ago, so I've apparently forgot who H is. Time to reread Hitchcock. it. <laughs> no, American. Oh, oh, got it. I'm so, sorry. Okay. But I'll just you know what? I'm gonna reread it right now. So pause. Joking. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Okay, and what have you found uh, out in the ether? So I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, um, as I've talked about before on the show. And so one of the things that once we started this podcast, I was kind of like messing around on iTunes and looking at our uh, iTunes site, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, thank you if you've reviewed us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. the easiest way for other people to find this show. Um, And so as part of what I was doing was looking at related shows, shows shows that iTunes was saying, these shows are like you. Um, These shows are doing it better than you. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks, iTunes. Speaking of great shows that are doing classic movies better than us um i actually found a new one through itunes thank you itunes um and it's called you must remember this uh i don't know if anybody has been listening to this before but this was a totally new podcast for me um it's coming out of new york public radio and it is um by a woman named karina longworth she's an academic who focuses on kind of classic hollywood or at least hollywood from the first century of hollywood so things that are 2000 and before um and so she she does a podcast that focuses individually on a lot of different stars. She focuses very much on kind of scandal and like the Hollywood Babylon kind of side of things. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating podcast. I also love it, who I know I've mentioned on this podcast before, Anne Helen Peterson, who's a writer for BuzzFeed, who is also an academic who studies gossip blogs. She's frequently a contributor to that show. Um, oh. And the two women remind me a lot of each other. Um, but she clearly, you know, kind of goes through really researches someone's life and then puts together like a half hour, 45 minutes long podcast about one sort of segment of their life. So um, I listened to a couple of really great ones recently. One was actually about Isabella Rossellini in the 90s. Um, I have to admit, I didn't really know that much about Isabella Rossellini and was like really shocked to realize that she was involved not just with David Lynch, but also with Martin Scorsese in the 90s. So her life was sort of bookmarked by that point. Um, There was a really beautiful one about uh, Judy Garland and her life. And one uh, that followed the Judy Garland story that was about um, just the story of When the Star is Born, the remake with um, Barbara Streisand was made and really going through each individual piece. Fascinating, so gossipy, so fun, um, so much... Well, it's really interesting to hear. But she is in the midst of what is definitely her most ambitious project, which this entire season of her podcast is devoted to Charles Manson and the Charles Manson murders. So I just listened to, on the way home from work today, the 10th part of this Charles Manson story, where she really dissects all aspects of um, both Charles Manson and his family, and then all of the Hollywood people who are surrounded by that story, and really tells each of their stories individually, really gets deeply into it um i am not particularly into true crime and was not super well versed in the story um of the charles manson murders i knew you know just kind of the basics of things and things that i had read in uh easy riders raging bulls and and some of that period but fascinating story and really really well done not really salacious um and i have learned so much of just about the 60s and that time period and what was kind of going on then so 
I would highly recommend it. The podcast, again, is called You Must Remember This, and it's by Karina Longworth. Definitely give it a listen. I've definitely been wanting to check that one out. Every time you come home and tell me these stories, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I just haven't gotten around to it. I'm definitely going to do that this week. Yeah, I'm super excited. I would highly recommend it. That's great. And we always like to end with what we're currently reading at this time. So, Monica, what are you reading? So, I, I was going back and forth on this because I've been reading kind of a lot of business books and other things that I don't particularly feel like talking Bears about. Bold. Exactly. Things that uh, that nobody wants to hear about. Um, but I have been reading. Every night I read um, to my daughter. And so one of the things that I realized is that there is this amazing children's book series that I'm like completely in love with and enamored of. And I don't know if everybody knows about it. So I just wanted to take a second to give a plug to a book that is, you know, kind of for the, the kids in your life. It is... Um, a book called Dory Phantasmagory that was recommended to me by a librarian friend of mine who really knew what she was talking about um, and knew exactly that it was going to be for me. It's about like a really crazy, dirty, messy (laughs) kid named Dory who's also known as Rascal who kind of walks around her house all day wearing like a dirty nightgown and has a fairy godmother uh, named Mr. Noe who is a garden gnome. Um, So, you know, like it's, it's a really silly book series, but it's also kind of like gross and funny and just about the reality of being like a real kid it's kind of a Ramona Quimby book for like 2015 um I just finished reading the second one to my kid and uh I'm just completely enamored of this book in like a really real way so the newest one is called Dory and the Real True Fun by Abby Hanlon but if you haven't read the first one and you have a cool kid in your life who's six or seven and looking for a a rough and tumble kid to to relate to I think it's an awesome book that's great yeah I love it I'm currently reading another comic book series. This one I've been following from the beginning, from about 2010. It's called The Sixth Gun. It's released. It's a monthly release by Oni Press. It's by uh, writer Colin Bunn. Uh, Brian Hurt is the artist, and they added Bill Crabtree on as the colorist. It's a weird western, and I say that weird with a capital W, which means it's really, in this uh, milieu, it's a um, supernatural western. Monthly book, I'm up to volume 7. Uh, which is not the bullet, but the fall. should be about 10 volumes when they're all said and done. It's one of my favorite comic books out there right now. I've been reading it in trade. I'm a little behind. Um, It's just a gorgeous book, well drawn by Brian Hurt and colored by um, a couple of guest artists, but the the color by Crabtree is excellent as well. Um, It's a strange story. Um, In the dark days of the Civil War, six guns were brought out of hell and given to some very bad men. Uh, each of these guns has a special power. One has um, shoots with the the shells of cannonballs. Another can heal you. Another can tell the you know can prophesize the future. Um, spread the flames of perdition. Each each gun has a different thing. But together, these six guns can rewrite creation. Of course, they're in the hands of some very bad men. So of course, enter our heroes. One of which is a scoundrel and a rogue treasure hunter. And then he's brought into his circle a, an innocent young girl who we find out is very capable uh, of on her own. And they each become uh, in possession of some of these guns and trying to thwart this evil. It's a wonderful western. It's a wonderful supernatural story. It's a bit of a, a horror book. Um, I'm enjoying it. As I said, I've been reading it since 2010. Um, every six months I get a new trade and it's one of the first things I read. I'm a little behind right now, so I'm slapping my own wrists on that. But it's a gorgeous book um, and a lot of fun. And if you, it was up for um, NBC Pilot a couple of years ago with uh, Michelle Huisman 
from uh, Game of Thrones and Orphan Black and a few other things. He was up as the main character. Of course, it wasn't picked up. It's probably a good thing. Uh, but so I'm just reading it, loving it every month, um, The Sixth Gun from Oni Press. Awesome. So this is the part in the show where we talk about what we're going to watch next week. Um, my turn to to pick. It is. So I have chosen, since I'm in a bit of a noir mood uh-huh. from my Summer of Darkness, thanks to TCM. Is that done yet? Uh, it finishes up this week okay. as we're taping right now. So I uh, just aced my final exam nice. in my class. Awesome. Uh, so I'm not picking a film from that, but still something adjacent. So I want to watch the 1990 film The Grifters. Yeah. Stephen Freer's directed. It's with John Cusack, uh, Annette Bening, Angelica Houston. I've never seen this. Yep. I, I cannot say that I've seen it either. Good. I'm glad I've to hear that. I've seen enough scenes from it that that's doesn't Perfect. Really I think I've seen the intro. Um, this is based on the Jim Thompson classic crime pulp novel um script by donald westlake who was a classic pulp writer as well um supposed to be great i've always wanted to see it never gotten around to it and since i'm feeling a noir uh, or noir adjacent uh thing right now i'm definitely excited to check it out all right so grifters comes up at a party what do you say about it uh the grifters Ooh, rife with oedipal issues between benning and cusack and cusack and (laughs) and houston it's it's just so a bit unnerving but stylish and fun at the same time nice. and you oh gosh i can't i, I don't know that i can uh, outdo edible issues that's pretty impressive but oh man annette betting at her most beautiful there you go not bad i'll take that that sounds yeah, good well, so good. next so stick around next time um it's available through various streaming services um i know it's currently at this t- time of taping on, uh, on Amazon Prime. Very cool. And so that brings us to the end of our show. You've been listening to Brad and Monica, your own cinematic idiots. Huge thanks to our producer, editor, and consigliere, Clay Addy. Uh, special thanks to Tom DJ of Bossman Graphics for our amazing logo. I love our logo. Uh, if you like the show, please review us on iTunes. Thanks for the reviews that have already been sent in. Uh, of course, subscribe to the show. Um, we're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, SoundCloud. Go to our website. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Cinematic Idiots. Um, you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. Promise to do more with that coming soon. And remember, don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Take care.